You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, comrades, and welcome to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to ask a favor of all of you. Uh, It doesn't involve any money, and it involves a very, very small amount of your time. Uh, If you've been listening along with us, and I know that more folks are listening based on the podcast statistics, it would be really helpful for us um, if you review us, rate us, leave us a comment on whatever platform you're listening to. A brief shout out of thanks to Evan Marks, who reviewed us on iTunes this past week. Thanks, Evan. I will gladly call out folks who review us uh, on the podcast in future episodes if you want or not. If you don't want whatever you want, just leave us a review. I'd super appreciate it. Also, one more item of housekeeping. Please check us out at perchperspectives.com. We've got a twice a week free newsletter on important things that are happening in the world geopolitically. You can also learn more about Perch Perspectives, our story, and what services um, we help our businesses and our clients with in navigating this increasingly competitive, increasingly uncertain world. Joining us on the podcast this week is Ray Ma. I was super excited to have Ray on the show. She's, uh, among many other things, the advisor, creator, and co-host of Tech Buzz China Podcast, which also has a bi-weekly newsletter that you can get for $2 a month. Uh, you can check out Ray and Ying Ying's podcast and everything else Tech Buzz by going to techbuzzchina.com. Uh, I'm an avid listener and I'm also a newsletter subscriber, full disclosure. Uh, for those of us who have anything to do with technology these days, and especially in trying to understand how certain technologies like 5G, AI, quantum computing are really becoming the front line in the U.S.-China competition, uh, Ray and Ying Ying and Tech Buzz in general do a great job in leaving aside the politics and just diving into the technology itself, helping you get better ground truth. So if that's something that interests you, highly recommend you check them out. Thanks again, Ray, for coming on the show. I thought this was a really great episode. Uh, listeners, we appreciate your support so much. Stay safe, wear your masks, uh, take care of each other, be good to each other, and we'll see you out there. It's Friday, August the 7th. It's 4.08 p.m. Central Time. My air conditioning is still broken. And Ray Ma is nice enough to join us on the podcast. Um, Ray, just so you know, the the longer the podcast goes on, the hotter this room gets for me. So if I start sounding incoherent, that's why. <laughs> um, could I, I, I thought we could just start, Ray. Could you just introduce yourselves to the listeners of the Perch Pod and kind of give them both a little bit of your background, but also tell them where they can follow you with your insights going forward? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, I do a lot of podcast interviews, but rarely one that's not tech focused. So this is really exciting for me and very different. Um, So I am bilingual, bicultural um, girl who was born in China, grew up in the States, primarily in Silicon Valley, and has been working in tech ever since I graduated college uh, from Berkeley. And that's been about 16, 17 years. So yes, I am. Up an upper millennial, I like to call myself, <laughs> and uh, I all my um, both my living and professional experience is actually sort of bifurcated, like half U.S., half China. And in the last couple of years, I've started working with a, a friend of yours, Ying Ying, on a podcast called Tech Buzz China, and that's one of the things I'm working on right now. But so you can find me at uh, Ray Ma. That's spelled R U I M A on Twitter, where I'm okay active. Some people think I'm very active. And then uh, you can always reach us at techbuzzchina.com. 
Yeah, and I, I'm a fan of Tech Buzz China. I'm a subscriber to the Tech Buzz newsletter. It's great if you have any interest or exposure, anything in kind of the U.S. tech China space, or even at this point po politics, because this is the space where the political confrontation between the U.S. and China is happening. I highly recommend going and checking them out um, at Tech Buzz. Um, it just gives you a more on the ground sense and a, a really refreshing, depoliticized sense of what's actually going on. And I know that in my own work, kind of advising from a larger scale, some of these companies that are trying to navigate some of these political landmines, um, your insights on TechBuzz have been invaluable for me and for some of my other clients. So just want to encourage listeners to to check that out. Look, a lot. So a lot can happen in the next two weeks, and this is going to post in about two weeks. So uh, apologies if anything gets outdated as we go. Um, initially, you and I were going to talk a little bit about semiconductors and 5G, and we're still going to dive into that. We have some great things to talk about, but um, it would be I would be remiss if I didn't sort of ask one of the leading experts in Western media on ByteDance uh, if I didn't just couldn't get your quick take on the Trump administration's announcement that it's going to ban <laughs> TikTok and apparently ByteDance from U.S. networks in 45 days and maybe, well, definitely WeChat and maybe all of Tencent. So just what, what's the two minute kind of quick take right now based on everything that's happened in the last day about ByteDance, TikTok and Tencent? Yeah, first of all, I, I am actually pretty certain by the time that we air this, it will be outdated because that's the cadence of news flow right now. It's basically changing, you know, on a half day basis. Uh, so you're right. Trump had two executive orders last night that he put out where uh, ByteDance, which is the owner of TikTok, um, as well as WeChat was explicitly banned um, for for WeChat, the executive order actually talks about Tencent, but apparently afterwards, supposedly, you know, the White House clarified that it wasn't all of Tencent, it was just WeChat. Um, however, you know, by just reading the words, you wouldn't really know that. So it's hard for us to say. And, you know, he has described it as transactions. Uh, no one really knows what quite that means. Apparently, there will be more clarifications on what that means. Does that mean using the service? Does it mean you know, actually making a payment because, you know, these things are free right now. And uh, basically, what does it cover? And a lot of people are basically concerned that, um, especially with this, with WeChat, because it is not really used by people here, but primarily in China, where it has close to a billion active users. Does this mean that Apple, for example, an American company cannot have WeChat on its app stores? Uh, a lot of people don't think that's the case, but again, it's so vaguely worded. We have no idea at this present moment. Yeah. And it's so strange because usually so much effort goes into crafting those executive orders. And obviously a lot of effort went into this one. This wasn't just something that they threw up at kind of the last <laughs> minute. And yet the language is completely vague. Like if, if you read the, the WeChat one, I mean, it sounds like all of Tencent mm -hmm. is going to get banned or at least that they're considering something like that. So I, I kind of understand why folks are really nervous about it. I, I know that I use WeChat to talk to people in China. Um, I assume that you do as well. Does the idea of not being able to communicate through WeChat scare you? Is it just kind of an annoyance? Like how, how should folks benchmark the overall impact of what that might mean if it does go forward? I think for me personally, um, a lot of us are already thinking about technical workarounds to this proposed ban. And we think that probably it won't cut us off from our business connections, um, personal connections in China. 
what it's probably really going to hurt immediately up front, at least on the personal level, is uh, people who have older relatives in China who will not be able to probably learn how to use a VPN and get on the other messaging apps that are available that you know are banned in China, but people can use here. So your WhatsApp, Telegrams, et cetera. Uh, it will also hurt, you know, American businesses. I am not in that category. We don't, our, our podcast and businesses primarily English facing. So we don't really have anything there, but I do feel for my friends who do either cross-border commerce or yeah, have an audience in, in China they're trying to reach and this may prevent them from doing that. They may also have to look at workarounds. I'm not saying it's impossible, but probably the most disheartening is that first tier of people. I probably feel the most for them. Uh, luckily for me, my grandparents are in the U.S., so um, yeah, <laughs> and I don't have well, a problem reaching that. Well, let me be the first to congratulate the Trump administration for securing U.S. national security by preventing Chinese folks in the United States from talking to their grandparents. That sounds like it's going to do a lot for U.S. <laughs> national security. Um, but let's let's put that aside for now and let's dive into what we wanted to talk about here. Um, so the the first question I wanted to talk to you about is is to kind of help our audience wrap their brains not around ByteDance and not around um, WeChat or any of these other things, but specifically Huawei and sort of why Huawei has come into the U.S. crosshairs and why the U.S. is moving so aggressively um, to basically try and cripple Huawei's global competitiveness. So can you kind of give our listeners a general over overview of the sanctions that the United States has put on Huawei, what the reasoning is behind them and kind of what you think the key takeaways are from them. Yeah. So on a very high level, right. Uh, Huawei is a semiconductor equipment manufacturer that also does sell quite a bit of smartphones and just like a bunch of stuff in that space. It's a very large company and it's been around in China for a long time. The reason why it's so heavily scrutinized by the U.S. government is that, number one, it's a privately held company, um, and its founder has a military background in China. So there is a lot of, let's call it belief. I'm not sure that the company would agree with this, but but a lot of people basically believe that the company is um, partly owned and you know controlled by the Chinese government, right? So... It, because also it deals with very sensitive infrastructure um, that does relate to national security. So we're talking about all, all of the, for example, base stations in your um, telecom network that it is, you know, a consider a threat to national security if you believe that it's part of a foreign government, especially an adversarial one, uh, as the U.S. government considers the Chinese one to be. So that is one of the main reasons why this specific company, because of its ownership and because of its business line, is so heavily sanctioned. Is there any evidence that any of the things that the United States accuses Huawei for, is there any direct evidence of it? I mean, I know that, for instance, the UK, I forget what it's, what mm -hmm. it's actually called, but whatever board they had overseeing Huawei, they would issue annual reports and say, well, there's some weird code and this, that, or the other thing. But I also know when it comes to this kind of telecoms gear, everybody has backdoors. You have to have backdoors in order to be able to service it or update it, all these other things. So is there any tangible proof of what the United States is worried about with Huawei? Or do you think that that's sort of 
that that the United States has made more of a deal out of it than it at least has shown evidence of for political reasons. I think what I would say to that is I'm really primarily number one a um, tech analyst, uh, especially on the commercial side, and I'm not a infrastructure security analyst or national security analyst. And even if you were, I think you really have to be like a super expert in this particular. Part of the infrastructure to really say definitively yes or no on some of these accusations. Um, I personally think that a lot of these security threats, you know, are very valid, and I, I appreciate the U.S. government for going after, you know, these concerns because if if there is something going on, then I think it poses a it poses a great threat. That being said, there is a lot of pushback, obviously from Huawei on some of these accusations. So unfortunately, I don't know what the truth is. Uh, I just know that at this point, these sanctions have kicked in and you know, make of it what you will. There's always going to be pushback on the Huawei side, but uh, you know, the US government has effectively made its decision and actually, uh, so made it in May of last year and extended it to May of next year. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure there's anything Huawei could do at this point to convince the United States government uh, to change course, because it seems to be one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats can agree on these days is that Huawei is bad and that China is a peer competitor. Um, but I, I specifically wanted to ask you about um, the, the specific areas where the United States is trying to block Huawei. And a lot of that goes around semiconductors and especially semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Um, so can you give our listeners a little more color on sort of what are the, the key vulnerabilities that Huawei has sort of from a, not from a supply chain perspective, but what things do they depend on imports for? And why is it so crucial that the United States is hammering on these very specific things like you know, seven nanometer chips? Help our listeners understand exactly what that means. Yeah. So if you look at Huawei, right, um, like I said, it makes both sort of telecom equipment uh, for infrastructure and also smartphones. Uh, what the U.S. did that I think was quite smart, actually, uh, to effectively pause a lot of Huawei's uh, efforts, um, or, or sorry, I shouldn't say that. What the U.S. government has been actually quite smart in doing is basically place these very specific sanctions where it really hurts. So actually, I don't know if sanctions is the right word. Uh, Restrictions. Let's call it restrictions. Yeah. So, restrictions, <laughs> what the yeah, yeah, what the what the U.S. government has been really smart about is really putting these restrictions where Huawei really does depend on foreign, specifically U.S. technology, and uh, where it knows it will hurt Huawei. Right. So, um, initially, it was a ban on you know Huawei being being able to sell infrastructure equipment here, but then it evolved into basically a ban for U.S. companies to work with Huawei and including, um, you know, companies that use U.S. technology or design. So what this means is that, for example, Huawei sells lots of smartphones. You can still buy smartphones Huawei smartphones here in the U.S., but Google, being a U.S. company, can no longer supply Huawei with a lot of its apps and services. And if you're an Android user, that could be very detrimental to your user experience. Um, of course, there are you know 
workarounds you could probably find, find on the internet on how to get around that. But actually, both Google and Huawei explicitly tell you they don't recommend it because it really is sort of against the law. And then also uh, in terms of you know other equipment, so Huawei. Uh, oh, so let me say so. So that's on the smartphone side. That's a great example of how these restrictions really hurt Huawei. On like the equipment side, for example, Huawei is a uh, designer of semiconductor chips, but it does not make its semiconductor chips. In fact, it makes its semiconductor chips through a a company called TSMC, which stands for Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. And TSMC is the largest, over half of the global market shares, sort of the largest manufacturer of chips. Huawei was actually their second biggest customer until these restrictions kicked in. Uh, Apple is their first. And for TSMC, now they use U.S. technology and equipment, and they can no longer support Huawei in making the chips that Huawei has designed. And that's a big issue because there are no current semiconductor manufacturers in China domestically that have the sort of expertise that TSMC has. So TSMC is like you said you mentioned seven um seven nanometer which is sort of like the best let's call it the best available chips right now in terms of it's the best available chip. i should just say best available chips otherwise it's gonna be too, it's gonna be like hard to define like power efficiency yeah. so like the tsmc currently is able to make the seven nanometer chips which are very advanced it's called the most advanced um on the market right now whereas the leading um semiconductor manufacturer in China, SMIC, it's like two generations behind, right? So TSMC is the manufacturer of choice, basically, if you are Huawei. But now that it's not able to service you, then you might have to find these other alternatives. And um, what's even trickier than that is that even companies who are not Uh, for example, using U.S. technology and are not American, are being pressured by the U.S. government to not support the Chinese effort at semiconductor manufacturing. So one of the most important companies is that there's a process in semiconductor manufacturing called etching. And the leading equipment manufacturer of etching equipment for these advanced chips is a Dutch company called ASML. you know, technically, ASML doesn't violate any rules uh, with the U.S. because, you know, they're Dutch. But the U.S. government, led by Secretary Pompeo, has gone and sort of pressured the Dutch government into not giving ASML the proper export licenses. So ASML cannot sell to SMIC. It's the, this core equipment that SMIC would need to use to manufacture chips for Huawei. So you see, there's basically like so many players along this chain that um, the U.S. can either directly restrict by that announcement or sort of indirectly influence and really put Huawei into a very tight corner. In not being able to make the most advanced cutting edge chips, the U.S. and China kind of have something in common, um, especially after Intel's announcement, I guess, a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago, that they've also fallen behind TSMC. TSMC has sort of more than 50 percent market share when it comes to the overall 
foundry business when it comes to semiconductors. So that's why it's, I think it's at the center of all these things. And I mean, Taiwan, I think, is increasingly and unfortunately going to be at the center of these political tensions. It always has been. Do you have a sense, um, either from your own work or talking to experts that you've been working with about how fast China might be able to catch up when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing? And I know th there's a lot of different components of that. Like you said, um, it's not just the semiconductors themselves. Sometimes it's the software. Sometimes it's the machinery that a company like ASML makes, which is the machinery that you need in order to make the chip itself. Right? You can have all the expertise for the chip, but if you don't have that machine, that's a whole nother sort of can of worms. So how fast do you think China can catch up realistically? Is this a two-year gap? Is it a 10-year gap? If you look at SMIC, which is the fifth place you know, global market share uh, capturer of semiconductor manufacturing and China's homegrown sort of national champion, um, you know, it's behind. It's not horribly, horribly behind. They, they can make like pretty advanced chips still. It's just not nearly like top of the line like you have at TSMC, which is, by the way, way ahead of everyone else, right? Um, even Samsung is, in terms of market share, is like a third of TSMCs, even though they're they're second. So I think the, the right question to ask is, uh, I, the, actually, the question you're asking could answer me in two different ways, right? Number one is Huawei. Huawei is a Chinese company. And of course, these US restrictions hurt it. But a lot of us forget that actually there's more players than uh, just the US and China in this semiconductor market. In fact, as, as I've already proven, China is really not that great at this market. Uh, we still have Samsung, um, even though it's behind TSMC, it's still a very significant player. And Samsung's already working with Huawei to make basically supply chains that are completely independent of US design and technology. Um, so that effort is going on. And then of course, there's the domestic Chinese effort to make sure, um, you know, that Chinese many, uh, that more and more China can capture the, the advanced technologies needed to make these chips. Uh, I would say that effort is hard to say, right? I've talked to a bunch of experts about this and you can see a lot of analyses by different people, uh, online about their predictions for how quickly, you know, China can catch up. So if you make the assumption that TSMC is like two generations ahead of SMIC and that, you know, no one else will emerge in the meanwhile, and we're just talking about SMIC here, then um, I've seen ranges of anywhere from like three to 10 years in terms of how quickly they can catch up to TSMC. But that's also assuming that the current pace of development that TSMC has been able to sustain is going to continue, right? Which is roughly along the lines of Moore's law, like, you know, one and a half, two years, like doubling, something like that, right? So we don't know actually if that's possible because we're getting so close to the, you know, physical, I guess, boundaries of what we can manipulate Right, we're we're talking manipulating very very small things now. Uh, we don't know if that will continue. So Moore's law, who knows? Uh, very close to hitting that. And then the second thing is, even if uh, TSMC, for example, is able to hit all these targets, could there be? At least in my opinion, I've been talking to a lot of people who are working on alternative technologies. Right, we don't know that like this way of producing chips and 
these being the chips that we currently use, is that necessarily with the advent of AI, with the advent of all these other technologies and different ways of, you know, architecturing things, is that like necessarily, uh, is basically, is there necessarily not going to be a, no, that's too many negatives. Is there, (laughs) might there be a divergent um, parallel um, technology tree that gets discovered where then the competitive playing field is, you know, China might not be so behind, right? But that's like all very, very, very speculative. So no idea. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I think you have to be speculative with these things. And one of the reasons I tell clients all the time is, is you know, a lot of the phraseology in the media right now is the, the race for 5G or the race for semiconductor mm-hmm. Um, self uh, self sufficiency, and it's really you can't really think of this stuff as a race because, like you said, one discovery or one advance um, can completely change the entire tech ecosystem and can turn it on and turn it on its head. And a country that is quote unquote ahead uh, in one thing could very easily be, be behind the next day if somebody else comes through with some, with some kind of cutting edge innovation. Um, yeah, I, I think it's also going to be really really interesting to see. What Samsung does, you sort of alluded to them, and mm-hmm. I, I've heard reports about Apple trying to do the same thing, creating supply chains that don't involve any U.S. technology in them. I got to think the United States is going to look at that as just another loophole and that Pompeo will go into his laboratory wherever he cooks up these sanctions and try and find <laughs> the thing that can close that loophole too. But that's also yeah. one of the problems of, of playing this game of whack-a-mole. The United States <laughs> has gotten itself into this position where it has a lot of advantages, but it's not necessarily the most advanced in the world. And a lot of these companies want to sell into the Chinese market, and they are not just going to go along with the United States and forfeit billions of dollars of sales into the Chinese market just because the United States says so. You're totally right. And just like you said, like I'm actually just very insensitive to geopolitics, I think, and, and, until recently. But basically, as I was doing research for this episode, I was like, oh, yeah, Samsung, like, you know, the, the Korean government is basically like supposedly expressed displeasure at, at these restrictions because, you know, Korea depends on China to sort of keep their troublesome North Korean neighbor to the north, mm-hmm. right, in check, right? So, and they have a lot of exports. It's like something like twice as many as what they export to the US. So, um, and, you know, physical safety too. So, you know, there are other players in, in this very complex game. Not and that's like not even talking about like yeah the potential technical things that could happen innovations divergence whatever yeah I mean we don't have to get on a South Korea tangent but I, I forget <laughs> I forget if the I forget if the sort of South Korean strategy is if they're a shrimp between whales or a minnow between whales and the whales always crush them or some formulation of that that they always use in <laughs> South Korea to describe their position. But they're, they're, they, I think, are one of the, the most important actors in this game and mm-hmm. one of the ones that are least well understood because they are kind of naturally closer to China. They would much rather sort of on a cultural and historical basis mm-hmm. have closer ties with China than Japan. They've got no patience for Japan and relations between them are, I mean, not worse than they are with China. They're different, but they're by no means easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't want to be a decision maker at Samsung or South Korea right now because you've got... You know, the Trump administration saying you got to pay more money for burden sharing. You've got Kim Jong-un doing whatever the heck it is he does up there in Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. And China sort of casting about 
almost desperately, I would sort of think to fill this gap until they get to self-sufficiency. But let's, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Japan too, and Japan also has semiconductor plays. So yeah, mm -hmm. this is very complex. Yes. Yeah. So, so let's, we'll, we'll just have to come back to those <laughs> in a future thing, but let's, let's keep going with China in particular. And, and one of the reasons I was most excited to have you on is because you actually have on the ground experience with China's overall tech ecosystem and its innovation environment. And one of the things I notice, especially when I'm talking to listeners or readers or clients is they just sort of have stereotypes or uninformed opinions about what innovation or what China's technology ecosystem looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I, th I think you're, you have a much different perspective because you recognize that China is a huge country. It's got local and provincial and national and municipal authorities, and you got to kind of work through all this. And they are um, China is producing technology and creating companies that are world-class, that are globally competitive. Um, so help us understand what, what is the Chinese tech ecosystem like? How is it different than the United States? What is your experience in navigating it yourself? Yeah. So I think, you know, the Chinese tech ecosystem, if we're just talking about just like startups, right, tech startups, uh, is actually quite similar to the U.S. in many ways now. You have sort of these large well, you know, homegrown giants, you know, they used to be Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, but now there's also ByteDance, there's also Meituan, Pinduoduo, et cetera. These companies sort of suck up a lot of the talent and resources, but they also spit out a lot of new entrepreneurs, right, who succeed there and then go and do their own startups. There is a lot of venture capital now since I was there. So I was there from 2007 to 2015, the end of 15. And I would say 2013-ish was when really, 14, you know, was really when the venture ecosystem kicked into overdrive because the government started really putting a lot of um, resources behind innovation and entrepreneurship especially in the technology sector. So I think that the main difference really is uh, aside from like, you know, the, 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 the fact that it's entrepreneurship in general is just very, I would call it like very grassroots. It's very dependent on talent. Um, the government does play more of a role in, in China in startup innovation than it does here in the US. So I was pretty lucky in that I had, you know, quite a bit of interactions with the government in in these uh, sorry, in these efforts because I was there during the right time, right? When that sort of boom happened. And the main thing I want to emphasize for people who haven't worked with governments in China is that yeah, like you said, they're very different, right? Like a district government thinks very differently from the city government. And by the way, districts are often competitive with each other uh, and that who may think differently from the provincial government. And then I never had a chance to work with the central government, but you know, like these are all very different entities with different goals. So while the central government might have some like grand announcement, like, oh, we're going to like, for example, China made some announcement. I remember, oh, we're, we want to have uh, university student entrepreneurship, right? Like in the U.S., it's like this kind of ratio, uh, this percentage of people become entrepreneurs. Well, in China, we have this many university grads, so we should have this many entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, so it's like this very, <laughs> this very like sort of like top down, <laughs> you know, sort of goal. But, you know, it doesn't tell you how you're going to 
achieve that goal. So that's really up for the local municipal district governments to decide. And what you'll find is that like, depending on who you're talking to, they have very different ideas because each region generally already has certain strengths. And most of the time their plans revolve around leveraging those strengths. And so, uh, for example, if you have very good universities already, then you might invest more in things related to that. And if you don't, then maybe you just like try to attract foreign companies. And, you know, if you were in Hangzhou with Alibaba nearby, then maybe you want to create like an industrial park where it's just for e-commerce companies or you're near car manufacturing. That's what your province is known for. Then maybe you want to do like automotive innovation. So it's just like very, very different depending on where you go. Um, For the most part, I found that the governments were pretty open-minded and like largely left you alone. So a lot of times the main difficulty in dealing with them was that they were, they had just like very unrealistic expectations of the sort of, um, how do you call it? They had unrealistic expectations of how easy it is to build a a startup ecosystem, right? It's just, yeah, it's not like, oh, you just throw, they're, they're just like, oh, I have these buildings. I, I can give it to you. Can, can you just come here and operate an accelerator? And, you know, we can just be exactly like, you know, Y Combinator and spit out like one unicorn a year. Um, so a lot of them are focused on the input and uh, that's very, it's very, very Chinese. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's not, it's questionable, like how effective that is. Yeah, I guess that also means, so you said you were there 2007 to roughly 2015. Yeah, I was there for eight years, over eight years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess you were also there for the transition to Xi Jinping. So did you see any kind of change after Xi Jinping became president or or was he not president for long enough while you were still there to, to have that really manifest down the chain where you were? Oh, you mean in like... Yeah, no. I mean, I didn't. You mean in terms of how the the governments interacted? No, because I don't have a comparison. Because the the sort of push into innovation actually happened after Xi Jinping, right? So I I don't know, right? I I don't know what was going on before then. I got the feeling that like largely tech companies were left alone because, you know for a very long time in China, it was culturally unacceptable to fail, and it was just like not a good thing to be working for a small company. So people really wanted safety, security, and uh, that also reflected in your social status, right? So if you work for a large company, it was like you had higher social status than you work for a small one. I mean, maybe it's like that here too, but it's definitely like that in China. It just wasn't a thing for people to go and start their own companies. And uh, the until the government, really, the central government in this case, um, a lot of the efforts, actually, I think the the spokesperson was Li Keqiang, right? So he really like, no, I don't know, I don't I have no idea again policy wise who was behind it, but I just remember that like it would just be widely reported that we're oh the country's now going after innovation and entrepreneurship, which they described as shuang shuang. I actually, you know, as someone who's really passionate about tech entrepreneurship um, and who is, you know, grew up in the U.S. and never really experienced like the government, like throwing its weight behind something. um, I was really kind of pleasantly surprised how quickly attitudes changed. Um, Again, it's not all because the government 
started saying this is oh this is really good for the country this is really good um, it was also because you had entrepreneurs like genuinely succeeding right you had at, at, around that time 2014 was Alibaba's IPO was when Xiaomi got really big and you basically see that people are like oh dang the top five billionaires in China are no longer in you know real estate which is how it was for a very long time they are you know tech entrepreneurs Sorry, not top five, but like five out of ten for tech entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I definitely think it's a badge of honor in the United States to say that you work for a startup because everybody thinks they're going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next. Well, I, I think there's only one Elon Musk. I don't think anybody's thinking <laughs> they're going to be the next Elon Musk. But there's definitely kind of badge of honor to it. But I think that that also gets to a a larger point, which is that globalization, in a sense, I think it was tailor-made for technology because when you had globalization and when geopolitics was less relevant um, to a lot of these countries, there was more free flow of information. There was just, it was more of a meritocracy where it was whoever had the best tech won and the state itself had other problems that it was dealing with. Um, and I think this is true in China. It's definitely true in the United States. You're seeing governments wake up to the fact that they have these companies that have these tech capabilities and these governments have realized that they can use them for their policy ends or, or for their political ends. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this really interesting disjuncture where a lot of these companies, whether it's a, you know, in some sense, a Microsoft has more in common with a ByteDance than a Microsoft has in common with the US government mm -hmm. and more than ByteDance necessarily has in common with the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. And during globalization, that could happen and that could be fine because there was a relative level of trust between the two sides. Mm -hmm. And that, it seems to me, is gone. And now that you know the Chinese and U.S. governments are staring down the barrel at each other, and I, I mean, we can talk about who started, well, we don't even have to talk about who started it. But, but now that Beijing and Washington really mistrust each other and think the other and basically feel like all of their worst suspicions about the other have been confirmed, now it seems like they're trying to twist their own tech companies into, into doing the things they want. And remarkably, it's not just a Chinese story. I mean, just look at how the U.S. is intervening in its major tech companies trying to get them to do the things that they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> really good summary. It's very frightening to me. It's just like an <laughs> average consumer. Like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not. It's... Um... It's, it's pretty scary, but um, let's, let, let's kind of zoom out here and we've been going for a while. I don't want to take too much time for the listeners, but one thing I did want to talk to you about was, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, was mm -hmm. about um, the talent perspective in all this. Because I think there is a tendency when it comes to technology for folks to focus on who has the best code or who has the best gadget or who has the, the cutting edge thing. And the, the truth is a lot of innovation really comes from fostering talent and being able to attract talent and sustain talent and then keep talent in the long term. And I think this is one of the areas that China has always had um, a little bit more of a problem in, in, in dealing with than the United States. Mm -hmm. Now the United States is the one kicking students out and right. making <laughs> foreigners feel completely unwelcome. But from a Chinese perspective, what does that look like? How do you sort of see China trying to foster an innovative environment? And, and what do you think of Chinese talent in general in that scheme of things? Yeah, so the, a lot of questions you have there. But basically, I would say um, in terms of talent, it's still the U.S. that leads, right? So because the U.S. is not basically, you know, 
just recruiting from China. The U.S. is sucking up talent from all over the world, right? And whereas China has not really been as successful in doing that, attracting foreign talent. And um, you can see that ta- China has tried, right? So it has it had the a thousand talents program, which which I think a lot of professors have gotten in trouble into, with in the in the past couple of months <laughs> for being involved in. But you know, effectively, it just it really just started off as a thing where they're, they're trying to attract foreign talent to come and you know live in China, do some research there. Maybe um, actually, you don't have to, but like a lot of it was around trying to foster more collaboration and ha- having them basically contribute to China's tech development. Um, that has, you know, kind of worked, but not not that well, because if you still look at uh, the top AI talent, so one of the organizations I'm very familiar with, if you're ever interested in this type of stuff, is a think tank called Macropolo. They just uh, did a study of the top AI talent, and it's pretty clear that even though a lot of these people might be ethnically Chinese, they're still living and working in the U.S. when they're publishing their most important papers, right? So the most, you know, quote unquote, cutting edge technology is still being developed in the U.S. In fact, it's uh, one company, Google, you know, is very, very far advanced in in this stuff. And that's where a lot of the best papers um, are coming from. Um, researchers there. So I think that in this respect, you know, China still has ways to go, but these things can change fast because like you said, talent is, you know, talent is individuals, right? And their relationships and individuals are much more mobile than supply chains. They they can move around. Yeah. And they can move around in mass, like relatively quickly. Um, I do want to add that though, you know, I've been, I, so I've been working on a book on ByteDance and I've been talking to a lot of people in Chinese internet, um, probably more, uh, a more diverse set of characters than I would normally talk to when I write my podcast. So, because in an effort to research what, what exactly is going on in Chinese internet innovation. And I can tell you that still a lot of people actually, if they could, would want to move to the U S right. Um, the, the reason is actually very simple. It's not because there are, um, you know, that they like just love American values or American food or something like that. It's because China is very competitive and you simply work too hard over there. So, Hmm. and if you don't work like, you know, what we call 996 hours, which is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, by the way, that's not even that bad. There's lots of companies who do worse, right? That, yeah, you, you can't succeed. It's not even that you can't succeed, but you may get fired, right? So, uh, people are just miserably burnt out over there. Uh, so as long as I think Silicon Valley companies um, still have relatively flexible, good working schedules and work-life balance, they they probably are still going to be a draw for top talent. That's probably going to be really jarring for a lot of American listeners because I feel like Americans think that they're the hardest workers in the world. And so to hear that they're not even close because they think no. about the French and how they go on vacation for 12 weeks, like, <laughs> oh, you know, Americans work so hard. Um, but, you know, I think t- to your point, I mean, sort of pound for pound, like China's up and coming. China hasn't been an established global power yet. It's It's gone through so much in the last couple decades just to get to the point where it can be on this global stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also one of the reasons that it's not just the Chinese government that is kind of aghast at how Mm -hmm. the U.S. is going about this trade war. I mean, China feels like it 
it did what it was supposed to do. It's, it's trying to join the global system and it's being kept out by a United States that doesn't work as hard or that <laughs> final, finally sees China has better technology than it. And it's, and its answer is to say, okay, new restrictions, new executive <laughs> orders, new commerce things, you know? <laughs> that, that is probably close to the Chinese perspective. I'm not sure that's accurate, but yeah, I think that, um, but also, you know, just going back to the work thing, I, I don't know if you want to leave this mm-hmm. in the podcast, but basically like on work culture, you know, very unfortunately, it's not just a Chinese thing. It's like all of East Asia, um, mm-hmm. Korea's very bad. Japan is just notorious, right? And I have uh, worked and also uh, still continue to run organizations in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And these are also just terribly overworked populations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about necessarily like just the, you know, it's not like this is only happening to really important senior developers. This is just like all throughout the company. Everyone's just like throwing hours at the, at the problem. And some of it is because of inefficiency. But I am now convinced after talking to just a wide group of people that some of it is because the pace of competition is just pushing you. You, you have to respond, right? Because the competition is working this hard as well. and not everything is, you know, you're not necessarily like 50% smarter than the competition. If the competition is working 80 hours a week, like, and you want to keep up, then sometimes the only answer is you will also work 80 hours a week. So, or more. <laughs> That's such a good perspective. Um, Ray, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, so you're writing, I didn't know you were writing a book about ByteDance. I can't wait to read this book about ByteDance. Tell us your favorite <laughs> anecdote about ByteDance's CEO. My favorite anecdote about ByteDance's CEO. Um, yeah, because I, I feel like a lot of American listeners, you know, they, they know things about the, you know, the Bill Gateses and this, that, the other thing. And I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks, like, we need to humanize this a little bit for folks to understand yeah. it better. Um, and I also always like to throw a curveball question in for all podcast guests at the end that they weren't expecting. So just just tell me your favorite story about ByteDance's CEO that you think tells listeners kind of, you know, something about his character, about his company's character, or that you just thought was funny or interesting? Sure. I think that's the most memorable, probably. Uh, Again, I've never met the guy. Um, I'd only started working on this. It's an ebook, so it's like going to be a pretty short volume uh, a couple months ago. But basically, um, I've watched like a ton of interviews with him. And what my favorite story is probably about what other people have told about him, actually. So, um, oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. I have another favorite anecdote. Okay, I have another favorite anecdote. So yeah, yeah, do it, probably do it. My, yeah, probably my favorite anecdote is basically um, how the, this guy is um, has a very, very, or like this is a series of anecdotes, okay? So I have a series of anecdotes about him and also the company, which gives you some insight into... Um, just how ambitious this company is and where they started. So they started in this like dreary apartment that basically most most Chinese startups actually start off this way. So it's not special. They they start off in like yeah some works work live space basically, and they um, start trying to think about internationalization. They actually put it in their first full year's business plan and about how they're going to globalize. But at this point. 
Um, none of them had, you know, really spent any time abroad. In fact, Zhang Yiming had never even been to Silicon Valley. He didn't go to Silicon Valley until the second year of his company was when, when ByteDance was founded. So ByteDance was founded eight years ago, and he didn't come to California for the first time until 2014. And he would tell this like funny story about like how they were so clueless that one of their executives who had to get on a flight um, couldn't get on the right flight because apparently he bought the wrong ticket. He had swapped Indonesia and India. So, because <laughs> he didn't have the right visa for that country. And, you know, you look back and and see this company that now has you know offices all over the globe has these has a product right not not a ton but like tiktok for example that's like just beloved by millions of teenagers who i would argue are very fickle uh users um all over the world and it's just hard to imagine that it came out of that kind of you know a founding team uh, and it was mainly because they just worked really, really, really hard at it. Um, and they just didn't believe it when people told them they couldn't do it. Um, so another anecdote about how much perseverance um, this company has, or the CEO has, is when they first, when they made their first acquisition, uh, which is a, or first like notable acquisition, let's call it Flipagram in US, um, they came over here and they did a press release. Uh, sorry, they did a press conference and Zhang Yiming spoke in English. And apparently, I tried to find this article, but I couldn't find it. Apparently, he was written up as, oh, Zhang Yiming, the CEO of ByteDance, uh, spoke in halting English, which is expected, <laughs> right? I mean, the guy's not an English major. Um, and then apparently, he was so... Uh, butthurt by this comment that he went and just like took a lot of English lessons and you know apparently his English is a lot better now um, but from the very beginning to be honest he was a very global thinking um, person global thinking CEO he actually used a lot of en English in his early tweets and he would um, you know always push himself to understand the world outside of China and I think that's something maybe people can take away from this podcast, which is that a lot of the Chinese entrepreneurs, they actually know a good amount about um, Silicon Valley, about the innovation that's happening globally. You know, part of it, I think, is because they are very much aware of the existence of the Great Firewall. And they're very much aware of the limitations of not being able to speak English, which is like the language of doing business all over the world. So they're really afraid to miss out on crucial information, which makes them actually, I find, a lot more curious than many of the people I meet in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Oddly enough. I could yeah, yeah, I, I I couldn't have scripted a better end for the podcast, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. Um, we hope you'll come back soon. And Listeners, please, I mean, please always, you know, keep up with us at the Perch Pod, but check out Tech Buzz. Um, it's well worth your time. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. 
Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.